Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into the mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor. I'm happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. We're doing the work we need to do to heal self and world at the same time. Today we will begin what will likely turn out to be two contemplations on holotropic or psychedelic medicines. We wouldn't be able to do something comprehensive and complete even in three or four or five, so we're only going to be able to scratch the surface, but I hope it will be a good scratch, so to speak. It will serve some itch that the soul may have for us, and I think it may be helpful. And these reflections apply to our lives in general. We could say, whatever your medicine, we're going to talk about it. Maybe you work with psychedelic medicines, or maybe you work with the medicine of the horse, the medicine of the forest, the medicine of religious teachings, the medicine of music, the medicine of philosophy of any kind. That's what we're talking about, even if psychedelic medicines seem to be the main focus. So let's make it abundantly clear that we don't have to have any interest in taking psychedelic medicines to follow along here. Whether we work with psychedelic medicines or not, these medicines still have implications for all of us. And they're having an important presence in the culture right now, kind of resurgence. And we should educate ourselves as much as possible. But the philosophical principles we'll consider apply to working with our whole lives, not just these medicines. And nevertheless, we can learn a lot from contemplating them. They have more potential than I think we have so far realized in our culture. That's a pretty safe suggestion to make. And we're practicing philosophy together. That means we want to find out about reality and base our lives on that. We want to root ourselves in wisdom, love, and beauty, and bring wisdom, love, and beauty into the world. If you don't work with psychedelics, you can apply what we talk about to your life without them, to make your life and your world better. If you do work with psychedelic medicines in any way, or you think you might one day, These contemplations will help you work with them more skillfully. I thought we might start with a couple stories, because that's a fun way to start, and then we'll circle back for a little more context, because I think we'll need, if we just leap into these stories, you might get lost. So if if you are wondering where this is going, just stay with the stories and enjoy them. The first story is about the philosopher Buddha and a demon named Alavaka. Sometimes I'll say Siddhartha, and people say, who do you mean? I mean, that guy we call Buddha, he was just a philosopher, you know. Buddha just means he was the awake philosopher, one of the great sages that we have had the gift of receiving in this world of ours. Okay, so there's this demon, Alavaka, and on one occasion, Buddha was living in the abode of Alavaka, the demon. And Alavaka approached the Buddha and said, Contemplative, get out. 
And Buddha said, very well, friend. And he went out. It was like a demon cave he was in. And then the demon said, come in, contemplative. And Buddha said, very well, friend. And he entered. Now this happened a second time. Then a third time. And then the demon started a fourth round, saying, get out, contemplative. And Buddha, this time he said, no, friend, we're done with this. And the demon said, okay, well, I'm going to ask you a question, and if you don't answer, I will possess or confound your mind, or I'll cleave your heart, or I'll grab you by the feet and fling you across the Ganges River. And Buddha said, well, friend, I don't see anyone in the whole cosmos, gods, devils, brahmas, or any among the contemplatives, brahmanas, deities, and humans, who could either possess or confound my mind, or cleave my heart, or grab me by the heels and fling me across the further shore of the Ganges. Nevertheless, you may ask me what you want. And then Alavaka addressed Buddha in verse, you know, because demons are good with poetry. And his questions, this won't sound like poetry, but his questions, first questions he asked, what wealth here is best for human beings? What, well practiced, will bring true happiness? What taste excels all other tastes? How lived is the life that is best? And then Buddha replies in verse, True spiritual confidence is the wealth best for human beings. Reality well practiced brings happiness. The taste of truth excels all other tastes. A life wisely lived is best. And now we'll go to a, another story. This one is also about the Buddha. And in this occasion, Buddha was in the city of Nalanda, and a man named Kavata approached him and said, Buddha, the city of Nalanda is powerful. It's prosperous and it has a large population of people who already follow your teachings. It's a huge city. You should have one of your practitioners show off their psychic powers. That will make a huge splash here and it will make you so famous and everyone will have even more confidence in you. And Buddha said, Kavada, I do not teach my practitioners to show off psychic powers. Well, then Kavada asks him a second time, and Buddha replies the same way. Kavada asks him a third time, and Buddha replies in the same way, but he sees he's going to need to explain further, so then he says, Listen, Kavada, I teach three kinds of miracles. The first is psychic powers. The second is telepathy. And, okay, I'm going to cut Buddha off there. Sorry, Buddha. Before he gets to the third one, the third kind of miracle, so that we can talk a little about the first two, because I think they go together. Now, it might sound weird to separate psychic power from telepathy, but Buddha explains what he means. You see, psychic power 
it includes some stuff that we'd see in Marvel comics. With psychic powers, a person can go from being one to being many, or from being many to being one. A person can vanish, and they can also appear out of nowhere. A person can pass through walls and even pass through mountains. They can dive into the earth and also walk on water. They can fly, they can touch the sun, and they can influence anything in the cosmos. It's some pretty wild stuff. Telepathy is just reading minds, which is kind of tame by comparison, but still very cool. And Buddha explains to Kavada that the first two kinds of miracles don't convince dismissive people. Now, that might seem surprising, but the dominant culture philosopher Kierkegaard agreed with Buddha on this point. Kierkegaard wrote about Christians, or people who weren't Christians, who were critics of Christianity, who say that they wish they could have met Jesus in person and observed his miracles firsthand, because then, they say, they would be able to believe in him. If, you know, if I could just see it for myself, then obviously, otherwise I, it could be a story. And Kierkegaard says, well, no, seeing these things will not sway us if we have a dismissive mind. And a part of his argument is that he points out that plenty of people met Jesus in person. And yet, clearly, not everyone accepted him as the Messiah. The idea is that where one person witnesses a miracle, a dismissive person will explain the miracle away. You know, if anybody's thinking of Pulp Fiction here and the famous conversation about whether or not God worked a miracle uh, with Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta, you know, that might come to mind here. Those who don't accept psychic powers will claim that they witnessed a mass hallucination, for instance, or a coincidence or something like that. If you don't believe in psychic powers and you see something, like it appears that someone walked through a wall or divided into two people or whatever, you'll think you hallucinated or something like that. And even if we accept psychic powers, though, Buddha felt that people wouldn't attribute them to the practice of philosophy. Isn't that interesting that he thought of that? He wasn't just saying, oh, well, no one believes in those things, Kavada. No, he said that a person might accept psychic powers or telepathy, but then what they'll say is, okay, well, that Buddhist contemplative, they, they can't read minds because of their spiritual practice. No, 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 no. That's not, why the, that's not how this Buddhist contemplative is able to read minds or do psychic power stuff. You see, there's a, an amulet or a secret herb or something like that. And that's what gives this person the power to read minds or perform whatever miracle. Now, this is a very important point for us at this moment. I think you can hold that image in your mind if you like. I invite you to hold it. There's the Buddha saying that people will tend to attribute psychic powers to an herb rather than accept that the practice of philosophy could unleash those powers as natural to us, as part of the capacity of our own mind. So, and he explicitly does this. I'm not, I'm not adding this detail. This is a detail that is in the story. And the main point, though, in relation to the story is that Buddha doesn't think psychic and telepathic miracles convince dismissive people. 
But there is a third miracle. Buddha says the third miracle is instruction, teachings. How many of us have received teachings we experienced as miraculous? Maybe we have, maybe we haven't, but I will submit that the teachings of the wisdom traditions are indeed miraculous. I see the miracles in people's lives all the time, and they consistently seem to surprise people. Now, wouldn't it seem miraculous to know someone personally who had lived with anxiety, depression, self-hatred, and a focus on material things? A person who would lie out of sheer discomfort of their own ego. A person who was reactive, distracted, and pretty thoroughly unhappy. Imagine we know a person like that personally. We, we, they're a friend of ours or some acquaintance we know well enough to know these things about them. And then we find out one day that this same person has lost all interest in money. They renounced all deception and they told the truth. They renounced self-deception too. And we knew them to be distracted and, you know, anxious and all this, but they, we find out they have become a master of their attention. They gave up all idle chatter before they, maybe they were big gossip and always, always just making small talk, you know, to deal, deal with their own discomfort. And now they feel true peace and joy and they have tremendous powers of concentration. And imagine that we have found out this person has experienced bliss and then went beyond bliss. They became truly wise, compassionate, and graceful. They experienced a profound and transformative insight or a series of insights into the nature of reality. And that would seem miraculous to us if we really saw that. Maybe the person was addicted and they're now free of all addiction And all of this comes from the miracle of instruction. You know, because instruction leads us to awareness or insight, and this is the greatest medicine we can possibly have. Teachings can work miracles in our lives, and when others see us following good teachings, it affects them too. So teachings are in some sense the ultimate miracle, although we might say that we just suggested insight is even higher, but teachings as, as producing insight or, or as creating a context for insight are miraculous. And then, of course, the insight is almost beyond miraculous. It's just the whole thing. It's the whole cosmos. It's the highest medicine. Okay, so Buddha says all this, and then he acknowledges, though, to Kavada that the miracle of instruction could also allow a person to create a second body made of their own mind. Now, this is a hint of what we now call Vajrayana practice, I think. This is kind of as if Buddha was really telling us in the Pali Canon that he knew all about Vajrayana practices that were supposedly uh, revealed much later. And so, in a practice like that, a person creates a mental body that allows them to separate their essence from their habitual embodiment and allows them to dispel the illusion of a rigid self. 
They create a second body that's so real that they can experience it. And they're, ex and they're creating it in their mind. It's very, it can be hard for us to imagine that because it's, it takes a, a great deal of training of the mind to do something like that. And the Buddha also acknowledged to Kavada that instruction would allow people to read minds, to hear divine sounds, to know their past lives, to go from being one to being many, to go from being many to being one and more. And finally, Buddha acknowledges to Kavada that instruction would allow people to converse with deities and celestial beings of other realms or dimensions of existence. To illustrate this, Buddha tells Kavada that a practitioner in Buddha's community of meditators, philosophical practitioners, was contemplating the elements, the fundamental elements of the cosmos. And he wondered where the elements themselves come from and where they come to an end. So this meditator in Buddha's community, one of his students, this meditator entered such a profound state of meditation that a portal opened up to other dimensions. <laughs> this is amazing. I love this story. So then the, this little meditator, he goes through the portal and he meets celestial beings there and he asks them about where all the elements cease to be. And they tell him they have no idea. But they suggest that maybe the beings in another celestial realm will know, a higher celestial realm. So the meditator goes to that realm and he speaks to those beings and they don't know the answer to his question, and they make the same suggestion that maybe beings in an even higher celestial realm might know. And this meditator goes through this process 14 times so that he keeps entering higher and higher dimensions of reality. And finally, he arrives at the highest celestial realm. And the beings he encounters there at first tell him that they don't have the answer either, but that Brahma must surely know. Why? Because they explain to the meditator, the great Brahma is the great conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, all-powerful, the sovereign lord, the maker, creator, chief, appointer and ruler, father of all that have been and shall be. He is higher and more sublime than we are, say these beings, and he should know where the elements come to an end. So the meditator says, that's great. But friends, where is the great Brahma now? And these highest celestial beings say, well, we don't know where he is or even what he is right now. But if you stick around, then light and radiance will appear. And after that, Brahma will appear. And soon enough, light and radiance appeared and Brahma appeared. And the meditator went up to Brahma and said, friend, where do the elements come to an end? And Brahma looked at him and said, Listen here, meditator. I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, all-powerful, the sovereign lord, the maker, creator, chief, appointer and ruler, father of all that have been and shall be. The meditator looked at him 
He replied, Friend, I didn't ask you if you were Brahma, the great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, the all-powerful, the sovereign lord, the maker, creator, chief, appointer, and ruler, father of all that have been and shall be. I asked you where the elements come to an end. Well, Brahma replied the same way. The meditator asked once again. Brahma replied a third time. But after the third time, Brahma took the meditator by the arm and led him away from the other celestial beings. And he said, Meditator, these uh, gods, these other uh, celestial beings over there, they firmly believe there is nothing the great Brahma doesn't know, nothing the great Brahma doesn't sense, nothing of which the great Brahma is unaware. Therefore, I can't say what I'm about to say to you in front of them. You see, the truth is, I don't have any idea where the elements come to an end. But Buddha knows. You should go back and ask him. Now remember that Buddha is sharing this story with Kavada, and he tells Kavada that just like that, a strong uh, human being might flex their arm. That's the analogy he says. You know, just imagine like a strong human being just flexing or extending their arm suddenly. It was suddenly like that that the meditator vanished from the highest celestial realm and appeared in front of Buddha. And he asked Buddha his question. And first Buddha said, it's good that you finally came back to me. And then he told the meditator that he didn't ask the question in the right way. So you can't get the answer if the question is off even a little bit. And he gives it back to him just slightly altered. And after he adjusts the question, then he gives the answer. And the answer is, basically, in our own mind, the elements come to an end. Now think of what a wild teaching that is. You know, it might seem kind of silly. I think we, we don't have enough respect for, the, for this teaching overall. Because it, we have to think about this meditator, this, this person who's sitting there with such incredible meditative power. Most of us don't have the kind of meditative power that when we sit down to meditate each day, portals to other cosmic dimensions open up in our mind. Now, we're talking about an Olympic-level meditator, a Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, Michael Jordan-level meditator. And even though this chap could open cosmic portals in his mind, he still didn't understand his mind as well as Buddha. And according to the tradition, Buddha knew all of this was happening because he had psychic powers. And he let the meditator go through all of this because he wanted the meditator to see clearly that the gods don't have all the answers. So we're kind of in sacrilegious territory here. Some people might find it offensive that Buddha suggests an enlightened human being can know things that even a god doesn't know. Because from the standpoint of some traditions, that just goes directly against the definition of God. In Buddha's time, there were people every bit as devoted to their god as people today are devoted to their respective gods. So this 
was already in his time a radical message that says every one of us, even the gods, have equal access to wisdom. It's like putting us on on the same level as gods in that we have the same essential nature. There's something essential that we have to share, even with a god. Otherwise, you could say from a philosophical perspective, we couldn't relate with a god. If there's any possibility of relationship, there must be something that is shared, and that something shared should be most essential, not something accidental or on the surface. It has to be something deeply shared. We're made in the image of the divine, for instance, is one way of putting this. But this is to say we just are the same in a deep way. And in Buddhist philosophy, the gods can learn what Buddha knows, but only if they practice. And unfortunately, Buddhist philosophy views being a god as a poor state for practicing enlightenment or realizing enlightenment um, because it's just too much fun being a god. Gods have too much power and veneration, and they live a lifespan that's just far too long. And, And all those things together make it hard for them to become passionate about spiritual practice. When you have that much power, and beings venerating you, and you have... You functionally, it's like immortality, although in Buddhist philosophy they're not immortal because the Buddhist philosophy deals in infinities. So, you know, our universe is going to come to an end and the Buddhist view is whatever deities are here, they're going to come to an end too. And then maybe they'll get a shot at an embodiment that won't be so cushy and so easy for them to procrastinate and put off spiritual practice because, you know, when you don't have that much power in an obvious way, and your lifespan doesn't look obviously that long, then you might light a fire under yourself to to practice. Okay, now these are our opening stories. Let's create a little context for them so we can receive some of the deeper meanings and insights they offer. We tried to hint and touch, but we're going to go into the inquiry a little bit further. We can consider this contemplation one philosopher's reflections and how we might better understand and work with healing medicine of any kind, as we said, whatever your medicine, but specifically focusing as a a kind of object of focus, relatively speaking, psychedelic medicines, so that those powerful medicines can help us do what we always mention in our introduction, healing ourselves and the world at the same time. If we don't do that, we will waste a precious opportunity and we'll allow these medicines, and our very lives to become limited and even trivialized, co-opted into the pattern of insanity. If we want to liberate ourselves in mutuality with the world, then we need to free ourselves from the pattern of insanity that has us all in its grips, has the conditions of life in its grips. The title of this contemplation, The Buddha Molecule, felt like a fun turn of phrase, and I think you'll appreciate the significance of it as we go deeper. It's very deliberate. But the title doesn't make this, strictly speaking, a Buddhist contemplation, not in any narrow sense, because I'm a philosopher, not a Buddhist. Well, why mention Buddha at all? Well, we're, we're going to see more clearly why I mention Buddha at all, but I want to say that for the first reason, maybe, the thing that kind of inspired this contemplation is the dialogue I very much enjoyed with Rick Strassman, Dr. Strassman, of DMT Research fame. After reading his book, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, and then engaging in dialogue with him about that book, it seemed important 
to try and offer a different view from the one that Rick puts forward in that book and in the dialogue we had together. And you can listen to that. And you can also listen to the dialogue I had with the psychedologist, Leah Friedwoman. Both of those contemplations are relative to what we're thinking about today. And uh, I engage in this reflection, this contemplation, with the utmost respect for Rick. He has put in a lot of hard work and has lived an interesting life. He's an intelligent person, and his work merits our attention and our respect. But the first place I think we need some correction or broader perspective is in his views on Buddhist philosophy. A major premise of his book, and it runs like a thread through the text, is that Buddhist philosophy doesn't offer us a helpful model for DMT experiences and that the Hebrew Bible does offer a good model, and in fact, a better model. Like, he's consistently dismissive of Buddhist philosophy as being significantly helpful with uh, modeling and working with DMT experiences and possibly other psychedelic experiences too by association. I was thrilled to read Rick's book because it at least addressed a basic concern I've had about psychedelic or holotropic medicines for some time now, namely that we lack a proper philosophical context for working with these medicines in a way that maximizes their potential not only for each of us individually, but for the world we share. My sense so far is that we mostly use these medicines in a way that limits their potential, and that means that even if we ourselves seem to feel better, and maybe profoundly better, we may not realize how much potential we still have left covered over, and we may thus end up contributing to the problems of the world rather than healing them, really healing them. Now, as a course example, and this is a bit coarse, admittedly, but I'm trying to be a little blunt. Okay, so as a course example, I, I might fly to South America and take ayahuasca many times and claim that it brought a lot of insight. And then, sometime later, I might physically assault someone at a nationally televised award ceremony instigating a spectacle of aggression and media nonsense after my work with ayahuasca, right? Now, that seems to have happened in real life. That seems to be a real thing that happened. To speak more generally, and still fairly bluntly, psychedelic medicines are getting co-opted into the larger pattern of insanity, and they seem to have become part of the self-help catastrophe. They've been pulled into that. The self-help catastrophe creates conditions in which we help ourselves primarily by taking from the world. The world gives us its medicine, her medicine, and we don't give back in a way that not only balances things, actually balances them, but vitalizes them. We don't even hit the criteria to balance things out, let alone go beyond, you know, to give back in abundance from what we received. And that means our healing, generally speaking, comes at the cost of the ecologies we all depend on. And it means our healing can end up perpetuating the pattern of insanity that made us feel unwell in the first place. We just carry that pattern into new forms. We can go further into that, maybe another time, but let's stick with a crucial point 
on which Rick Strassman and I agree. We agree that holotropic or psychedelic medicines can give people powerful experiences, but that without proper training, holistic philosophical training, these experiences will be, as Rick puts it, aesthetically rich but informationally poor. Now we can quibble over whether that's a good term to use, term of art, but it means we experience something big and beautiful and it can feel life-changing. But mostly, especially if we analyze what we really understand, mostly it overwhelms us. And we can't say very much about it that's really helpful, especially to, to others. We don't bring back insights and visions with enough clarity and detail that they can not only guide and direct our own lives, but could also guide and direct our whole community. I mean our culture and the community of life, all our relations. We can make a, a clear contrast between someone like Black Elk or Moses or Buddha on the one hand and the typical person working with holotropic medicines on the other. Rick focuses on people like Moses, prophets in the Jewish tradition. He makes a wonderful case that because the prophets underwent training and lived a holistic and holy life, they could receive visionary love wisdom that could guide their entire culture. In this tradition, prophecy is ultimately an act of grace, but it also depends on our capacity to receive and communicate sacred inspiration. Rick and I agree on this basic but essential issue. We need training and a holistic and ethical philosophy of life in order to maximize the potential of medicines that could bring transformational healing and insights. Many people, maybe even most people, don't realize this. It doesn't seem so. The experiences they undergo feel so powerful, so real, and so transformative that they don't realize how much they're missing. I say this with all due respect. It's so, so, so important. Every time we talk about things where people have felt they derive genuine help, that we need to be sensitive and honor that. Just because we're saying there could be more doesn't mean we're saying nothing good at all happened. But it is to try to get ourselves clear that when if we're off even a little bit, that can end up having reverberating consequences because we live in a, a world of profound interwovenness. So we're not quibbling. We're talking about things that are fundamental, really important things. And I often go back to good old Joni Mitchell on this point. She told us that we don't know what we've got till it's gone. And we have to go one step further with her insight and realize that if we never had it in the first place, we don't know what we're missing. We don't realize that our culture makes certain kinds of experience highly unlikely or even impossible for us. Together with the degradation of ecologies, we've, have, we've had a degradation of languages, cultures, and experiences. Can you imagine that? An extinction of experiences. Just as some species and languages have gone extinct as a direct result of human activity, there's a sense in which we could say some experiences have become endangered and maybe extinct or nearly extinct in some cases. 
in our culture, and when we think about that, by the way, I think it's important to realize that they, those experiences could be me big medicine. Like, maybe you've heard of silphium. This was a, a powerful herb. It was so prized in ancient times, and then it went extinct. We don't have it anymore. And it apparently was a tremendous tonic for the system. We have no idea whether we've made extinct some cure for cancer out there in nature. And in, when we're talking about experiences that may be endangered or may not have appeared for some time or are appearing with greater and greater rarity and with greater and greater instability, we could be missing a lot of medicine in our world. And in the dominant culture, with all its insanities, we don't have an overarching context that makes it possible for us to orient toward certain aspects of the great mystery that could be the medicine we need. So we have to seek out guidance. And it thrills me that Rick has found that kind of guidance in the Hebrew Bible. I think it's wonderful. Nevertheless, I respectfully disagree with him on a few key points. The main point we'll consider here as a counter to Rick's views, we're, we're going to say that Buddhist philosophy does offer a framework every bit as good as what we can find in the Abrahamic religions, which means Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, in all their forms. And I mean that Buddhist philosophy can help us understand psychedelic experiences and that, crucially, they can help us work far more skillfully with those medicines and with the experiences they evoke, thus improving the experiences and the effects of those experiences in the world. That is, making them more potent medicine for the world and for ourselves. Now, we shouldn't think of Buddhist philosophy as superior to any other tradition. And we will not view it as superior to Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. I'm not even working with it as a religion. It's a philosophy here. But that doesn't make it superior to Christian philosophies or Jewish philosophies or Muslim philosophies, Islamic philosophy. But we still could say, although it's not superior, we still could suggest that it might function much better for more people than the Abrahamic philosophies and religions, and that might be so for several reasons. And first, maybe the, before we say anything else, let's acknowledge Rick's concerns about interfaith dialogue. He offered the perspective of certain Jewish thinkers who feel that interfaith dialogue is, is actually bad because it makes each religion appear equal. And I know that sounds tricky. But you can imagine a, a, a peoples who have been historically oppressed and then being told that their religion is just like every other person's religion. Each religion sees itself as the one true religion, or at least it can see it itself that way. You know, It's not surprising if a tradition thinks it's the best one we have, right? Because that's why you're, you're part of it. But we could take a different attitude and say, first of all, that, again, we're focusing on Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist science and psychology. The religious part is, to some important degree, separable from the philosophy and the science and the psychology. So we will try to focus on philosophical and psychological teachings, insights, practices, 
and suggestions. And that seems a little bit more neutral, although we're not going to avoid these things because there's an interwovenness here, and we're going to maybe touch on that here and there. But we're going to do our best, nevertheless, you know, to be very inclusive. And we have a sincere aim here to not make anyone feel lesser. We don't lower ourselves by respecting the lives and practices of people from other cultural and religious traditions. I don't think we do. And it seems that we all have to figure out how to make sense of mutual acceptance and respect from within the highest ethical calling of our own tradition. In other words, we can't sort of pretend on the outside, but inwardly we believe everyone else is damned to some eternal hell. We have to try to seek out within our own tradition a way to understand and genuinely respect and accept other people's views. We have to be able to look at this impossible mystery and sense that somehow or other that mystery left us with differing points of view. Not only that, but maybe it works better that way so that we can come together in dialogue, true philosophical dialogue, and genuinely learn from each other. Now, the second thing that we could bring up here is that the Hebrew Bible doesn't say much about how exactly we must train our mind to work skillfully with the kinds of states and experiences these medicines help us enter into. You don't find a user's manual for psychedelics or even a how-to guide for prophecy. Now, while all the Abrahamic traditions carry information about mind training, it's not mainstream in those traditions usually, and it's not spelled out in any great detail in the central texts. But it is that way in Buddhist philosophy. It's all spelled out. Now, thirdly, many people have become frustrated with the Abrahamic religions. Now, I think that's bad news. I encourage people with ancestors in those traditions to inquire into them. I don't think we realize how much we lost in our rejection of them. They have a lot of wisdom, and they can help to heal our lives and our world. They can even help us if we choose to work with psychedelic medicines. I think there is good help there. It's not spelled out in all the detail that we would find in Buddhist philosophy, but still... They could really help us. Nevertheless, we might, even then, we might want help from philosophies and psychologies outside our tradition. And even so, it would mean that it doesn't take away from our tradition's ability to support us. Does that make sense? So if I felt myself to be a committed Jew or Christian or, or Muslim, and I say, well, I know in my own tradition there are supports. Nevertheless, I can also study some other philosophies and psychologies to get additional support because I want to work with either my life or psychedelic medicines or some other kind of forest medicine, horse medicine, music. And that doesn't mean I'm forsaking my own tradition either, just because I got that extra help. So I don't want to ignore the good things in my tradition, but I don't have to write off every other tradition. I I, I don't think, I'm not trying to encourage, and I, I want to actively discourage any kind of supermarket approach to spirituality because we all everybody wants to go to the spirituality buffet and everybody wants to eat chocolate cake and ice cream and nobody wants any spiritual broccoli or spiritual kale you know we so 
and then we just want to pick and choose and pick all kinds of little things here and there, and we haven't made a balanced meal. So I think we need something that is the main course and maybe a few little side dishes to go with it, a little extra salad, vegetables to go with it. And if you want your main course to be Christianity, for instance, that's great. You can certainly have some Buddha bread on the side and a Buddha salad and you know maybe some Buddha sauce, and it could make it a lot better for you. Or maybe you want some other philosophy to be the central piece. But the point is we're not for, for, we don't have to forsake our own lineage or our own heart tradition, root tradition. And this is part of what I appreciate so much about Rick's work. He went to his own lineage, and he found valuable guidance there. And while I encourage us all to value spiritual and philosophical lineages within the dominant culture, many people have no interest in getting deeply involved in some of these traditions in ways that would allow them to learn practices that could actually help them to work with holotropic medicines in an optimal way. Many people simply have no interest in converting to the Abrahamic religions or in professing them as their personal faith. And so they need a philosophical tradition that can give them everything they require for optimal transformational insight and healing, but without having the kind of theistic focus we see in the Abrahamic traditions. And Buddhist philosophy can do that. Now, the fourth point here is not only atheists, but even committed members of the Abrahamic traditions have turned to dialogue and also practice within the Buddhist traditions, in part because of the clarity of Buddhist teachings on how to train the mind and heart. Now, let me pause here to note that mind training, if we use the phrase mind training here in our contemplation, it means heart training, and it's holistic. So we could spell it out as heart, mind, body, world training. Or we could even stick cosmos at the end of that. But that's a mouthful. So each time we think about mind training, we can really think that we mean heart, mind, body, world, cosmos training. And all of those go together. Okay, but the point here is that we can find Christian monastics, people who consider themselves Christians, and have even entered the monastic life. That's how sincere they are as Christians. They've become monastics. And some of these people have also become Buddhist monastics because they see Buddhist philosophy as teaching them how to be the best Christians they can be. In their lives, Buddhist philosophy helps them realize the teachings of the Bible. So they are Christians, or Jews, or whatever, who practiced Buddhist philosophy as the best way to be Christians, or Jews, or whatever. Buddhist philosophy can do this in part because, as we just noted, the Bible doesn't have the detailed and elaborated psychology and mind-training practices that we find in the Buddhist traditions. And the Bible doesn't give us a systematized map of the mind and heart that we can find very easily in Buddhist psychology. Buddhist philosophy gives us ideas and practices that we can put directly to work in our lives, including in our encounters 
with psychedelics and maybe even the entities that we may meet in a psychedelic experience. Buddhist philosophy can make us far more skillful psychonauts, and nothing I know of can rival its capacity to empower us in this way. Now again, that does not mean Buddhist philosophy is the best, pinnacle, highest philosophy. Other philosophies may be just as good, and depending on our total situation, other philosophies may prove better for us. But I don't think there is one that surpasses Buddhist philosophy. They may, there may be as good, but just not better. And among other things, Buddhist philosophy can serve as a supplement and enhancement to any path we might already be engaged with, as long as we work with sincerity and discernment. We could take a very cynical stance and claim that Buddhist philosophy might be some kind of evil teaching, which puts on nice clothes so as to lure unsuspecting Christians or Jews or whoever into following false teachings. And I know most people practice a little more open-mindedness than that, but we should at least acknowledge this issue and use some critical thinking. Thinking critically, we can see that Buddhist ethics agree clearly agree on all the major Abrahamic ethical commitments. And Buddhist philosophy has proven a helpful supplement for many people who consider themselves inheritors of the Abrahamic tradition. Moreover, we could take a more inclusive view that reality is so wondrous and mysterious that the Creator or the Great Mystery put different kinds of knowledge with different traditions so that we could all share what we know and by such means bring about a greater life for all. And many indigenous philosophers think this way. We don't have to imagine this as divinely ordained, like God made it this way, but you can though, I'm saying it's, it's okay either way. But it's just to think of it as a reality that offers up many cultural and experiential possibilities. Each one of the venerable traditions of the world has a place in our world, and each one has a special magic in it. So that's our approach here. We will take an inclusive look at Buddhist philosophy as having some very special contributions to make for anyone at all, including someone seeking to work with holotropic or psychedelic medicines, and irrespective of their religious commitments. We want to find common ground and also offer some encouragement to ourselves. Encouragement to think about how to work with our whole lives more skillfully. And that would include working more skillfully with holotropic medicines, if we decide to do that. To say it again, they have a lot of potential, and they have become increasingly popular and fascinating to people. There's just so much buzz and energy around them, a lot of projection going into it, probably. In some ways, we see a second psychedelic renaissance unfolding in the dominant culture, and we need to do everything we can to take care of ourselves, each other, and our world in the presence of these medicines and our fascination with them, whether it will become something truly positive or not. Let's begin with 
just a little more respectful criticism of Rick's views. I don't want to pick on Rick, but any time we engage in public discourse, we naturally invite discussion and critique. We all need to think together. This expands the ecology of mind. And it's important to know that Rick seems to have some questionable views when it comes to Buddhist philosophy. I do recommend his books. But if you read them and think you are getting a reliable exposition of Buddhist philosophy, that will leave you with incorrect views. To take a simple but significant example, in his book, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, Rick discusses the five aggregates of Buddhist psychology. This is one of the analyses Buddha gave of our experience and a framework he gave for investigating our experience. The traditional five aggregates are sometimes translated as form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Here's the important point. In Buddhist philosophy and psychology, feeling refers to bare sensation. In fact, the word bare sensation, or the term sensation, is probably a better translation than feeling. In this context, feeling does not mean emotions. It means the basic quality of sensation. We experience each moment arising as positive, negative, or neutral. That is feeling. That's how each moment feels to us. I know of no Buddhist philosopher who teaches this as the same as emotion, and most Buddhist philosophers dealing with Westerners are careful to point out that feeling is not emotion. However, Rick refers to feeling as emotions. Now, this goes far beyond nitpicking for several reasons, not least of which that we are talking about something basic and central to Buddhist philosophy and psychology. If we don't understand the core teachings, then it can interfere with our practice and what we can realize. The importance of this relates to a major issue with respect to spiritual life in general, and holotropic medicines in particular, and that is that we have marginalized, repressed, and suppressed our need for rigorous study and learning. We have a lot of so-called non-dual teachers and gurus telling us we don't really need to study anything. And even in the Buddhist tradition, some practitioners do very little study. Anyone reading and studying Buddhist philosophy would understand that feeling is not emotion from the Buddhist perspective. Again, feeling is a technical term. It's not that emotion has no place, it has a different place, that's all. It just doesn't belong there in that spot. And we have to use the definition the tradition provides, and it's essential to get it right, especially if we're going to take the tradition seriously and we're going to practice and we're going to analyze and then make claims about the tradition and about what it's capable of. 
And that emphasis matters too. The term takes its fullest meaning from direct practice. It's not just a concept. Buddhist philosophy, like any serious philosophy, is not about intellectual entertainment. It's about practicing and realizing something. So feeling isn't some concept, it's part of practice. And therefore, when we notice an error like this, we're not indulging in intellectual entertainment. We're trying to understand something about the nature of experience, about the structure of our experience. And we're noticing a practice that could take us in the wrong direction if we don't understand it right. The foundations of mindfulness, for instance, which Buddha called the direct path to enlightenment, those foundations of mindfulness depend on investigating feeling and verifying how it works in our experience. And it becomes incredibly empowering to explore this nature of feeling or bare sensation and to notice how we habitually recoil from anything unpleasant or even potentially unpleasant how we crave pleasant things, and how we get bored or spacey when experience feels neutral. As we begin to sense this directly, to make it a focus of mindfulness, then we can stop being driven by this basic component of experience, and we can start to experience more spaciousness, freedom, and clarity of mind. It's part of waking up. That's what it's meant to be, a, a direct part of waking up. And th- this sensation axis, this, this basic axis of our experience, it, it plays a profound role in our lives. To say it again, if, if something in us avoids negative experiences or the threat of them, you know, that if there's something in us avoiding even the possibility of a negative experience, then that something can keep certain experiences at bay if they make that part of us nervous, right? There's something in there that says, I really don't like negative experiences. And, uh uh-oh, this experience, it could be threatening, so we're not going there. That's what a part of us can be doing, operating on a largely unconscious scale so that we're not aware that our experience is being fabricated like this by something that's kind of on autopilot whenever we haven't brought mindfulness to it and made it a focus or establishment of mindfulness. And this, of course, bears on working with holotropic medicines or medicines of any kind, again, any medicine, working with horse medicine, forest medicine, just working in our relationships, the medicine that our relationships are, If we work with any kind of medicine and something the ego finds too scary starts to come up, then the mind might leap right past it, even if we really needed to look at it. In fact, our ego can keep the material fully repressed. And so without the intervention of mindfulness, we wouldn't notice it. In a general way, we could say the ego will leap right past our own liberation. 
Why? Because that liberation seems frightening to the ego. As much as we might think, no, but I want liberation. There's a part of the ego that says, well, I'm not so sure. And if we understand the way feeling operates in our experience, we can begin to feel more confident, courageous, and compassionate in the face of challenging or potentially challenging experiences. And we have to keep in mind that this applies to experiences the ego imagines will feel even uncomfortable, let alone awful. What, which in reality might feel far less painful and may even feel ecstatic. So the ego's perspective again might be that this is going to be terrible. The reality might be that it's not so bad after all, or, you know, it is kind of rough. But either way, on the other side of this is liberation. So sure, it might be difficult. It should make it seem that the spiritual life is going to be all unicorns and roses and chocolate truffles and everything nice. There can be a lot of challenge to it. Even if we realize, as Buddha did, that we can't beat ourselves up. That's not what the challenge comes from. Self-torture, we're giving that up. So in short, Buddha's teachings related to feeling can become a game-changer. They really can. And that's why we want to try to get it right. Just to spend some time, and invite, I invite you to do that. You might like to try that, just to practice that foundation or focus or establishment of mindfulness. In, in your experience right now, what do you notice that's positive, negative, or neutral? Maybe the sound of my voice is grating for you. Maybe you like it, and that's positive. Or maybe it's neutral, and sometimes you space out. You say, that voice is a little... Not not comfortable enough, not annoying enough for me to pay attention. And everything is like this. And to see, oh, I recoiled from that because I thought I, I thought it was going to be uncomfortable. The moments, the encounters. We consider this not only to point out an apparent error in Rick's understanding of Buddhist philosophy and psychology, but also to acknowledge a larger cultural trend. It seems that some lineages of practice don't require their students to understand the basics of their own tradition. In our cultural context, we think we can practice Zen without ever reading Buddhist teachings. And now, I'm not accusing Rick of not reading Buddhist teachings. He's a, he's a, a person with a, an advanced education, and he is a very intelligent person. We're talking about a general trend. For instance, I have seen this in mindfulness practices, and maybe I've mentioned it before because I, I, I found it startling when I began to speak with people who had mindfulness certifications of one kind or another and who confessed that they had not read Buddha's teachings on mindfulness. And that means we can get formally certified to teach mindfulness without ever reading Buddha's teachings, the guy who invented it. And that's really saying something, because if he had the genius to invent something that our contemporary science has validated, that we're encouraging people to to innovate with, to work with, to practice, innovate their lives, I mean, not innovate in the kind of contemporary sense, but we're encouraging people to work with this, and yet this guy, who must have had an incredible level of genius to have 
invented <laughs> these practices. We're not going to study that person. Not going to study their direct teachings about it. And just as we might think we can practice meditation or mindfulness without serious study, we also seem to think we can work with holotropic medicines without serious study. Some people do think they're studying something. However, to be maybe blunt, if we could maybe pick a pop culture example, given uh, given a choice between reading Buddha and reading Brene Brown, there really isn't a choice. Not if we want to know our own mind and achieve liberation. Now, I say this with great respect to Brene Brown. I, I don't know a whole lot of, about her work. From what I can see, she has tried to bring a very positive message to the world. That's wonderful. I'm not telling people not to read her and learn. But as far as I know, she hasn't said anything the wisdom traditions don't already teach us. And reading popular books isn't the same as studying and practicing a holistic philosophy of life informed by a long lineage of teachers regarded as sages. Buddha, this person, Siddhartha, the philosopher, was a rare kind of genius. And studying the philosophy of that kind of genius can open up possibilities we cannot fully imagine. Now, we will realize them, of course. What I'm saying is, from, from the standpoint of now, huh, should I study this genius, we don't have any idea what would happen if we would just leap in and do it. And this doesn't have to be, again, we're not saying this is the philosophy for you, but this could be a helpful philosophy for you. And if you want to get the most out of it, well, you'll have to study. And it's perfectly fine if we experience someone like Brene Brown as accessible and Buddha as challenging. The best books are over our heads, so to speak. They stretch us. And they encourage us to find teachers who can explain them to us. Teachers who can orient us to practice and realize the truths they point to, beyond the sorts of tropes the dominant culture is happy to indulge. And Buddha is often very accessible. Some of things about the way people spoke and some of the technical terms that might appear, sure, we, we still need guidance, and we're never going to learn as much, even from some of his most accessible teachings, studying them on our own compared to studying them with a teacher. So that's no different than reading Plato. If we think we're just going to pick up Plato and read it and understand everything that's going on, we're, we're mistaken. And people haven't been studying Plato with the care and intensity and debate and discussion and analysis and critical thinking that they have for this long if it weren't profound. Okay, now we only have time for a few more brief reflections. Now first, on a positive note, Rick skillfully acknowledges that Buddhism, the, the, the version of of Buddhism, let's say, that many people in the dominant culture know, is something limited. He recognizes that. It's wonderful. However, this ends up being a confusing point in the book. While Rick lets us know that Buddhist philosophy has a place for the kinds of experiences we might have with holotropic medicines, sort of is acknowledging it a little, 
it puzzles me that he doesn't just go into elaborating what Buddhist philosophy has to offer us. Instead, he seems to take the confused and limited version of Buddhist philosophy and then call Buddhist philosophy itself inadequate. Does that make sense? I mean, I mean that in both, both senses of it. Does that make sense? And does that make sense? Why admit that the view we have doesn't generalize to the whole set of traditions, but then speak as if it does? Now, in practice, this applies to holotropic experiences in the following way. Our limited notions about Buddhist philosophy lead us to think that Buddhist philosophy wants us to see these experiences with holotropic medicines as mere illusion. And also, this this limited view we have doesn't even allow for the possibility that in the Buddhist tradition, there is engagement with other kinds of beings in other kinds of realm of reality when we're in meditative states, that that can be part of the spiritual life that we could learn from other beings. So we have this view, a certain narrow view of Buddhist philosophy that's not right, and that incorrect view makes us feel that they are disconnected, these traditions are disconnected from our work with holotropic medicines. And if the if we think that Buddhist philosophy is telling us, well, this is all just a hallucination, it's all just in, just merely an illusion, as if it wants to brush it off. Of course, this is very tricky anyway, because Rick himself is critical of of the experiences that most people do have. So there's a way in which, if the Buddhist philosophical tradition cautions us, it would caution us to say that you, we're probably in over our heads, and we we don't realize that we're being flooded and overwhelmed by something that we're not able to fully process. And Rick actually acknowledges that part. But it's just confusing in general for him to say, well, we have a limited view of Buddhist philosophy because of that view, then uh, we, we're we stuck with it, you, you know, and therefore because of that view, we can't use Buddhist philosophy to work with these medicines. If that's confusing to you, it's confusing to me. It just seems strange. I don't understand why he wouldn't just do more reading and research and go into the aspects of the tradition that do help us work with these medicines. And that's what we're recommending here. Now, I say, why not? Why didn't he read more and study more about the Buddhist tradition? But I'm actually glad he didn't because I I really think Rick made the right choice. I'm just saying that we don't have to justify it by by rejecting Buddhist philosophy. So I think he made the right choice for himself to turn to his own tradition. Sure, he could have gone way deeper into Buddhist philosophy, going beyond the particular version of Americanized Zen that he got exposed to, and he could have found out what the Buddhist traditions say that seems most resonant with and relevant to experiences with psychedelic medicines. But it seems so much better that he instead returned to his own ancestors and fell in love with his own tradition. So that's, actually, I think that's quite fine. I'm just saying, uh, why do it on the basis of saying Buddhist philosophy doesn't function here? Just say, you know what, this is my lineage, and I (laughs) want to turn toward it. I think that would have been better. Because the characterization he has of Buddhist philosophy is just not, I don't think it holds up. And a related point is that Rick seems to think of enlightenment 
in the Buddhist traditions as some kind of white light unitive mysticism. He uses that turn of phrase or something like it consistently in the book and in our dialogue together. And that too just doesn't hold up. I know of no serious Buddhist philosopher who would accept that as a characterization of Buddhist enlightenment. And so here too, I just want to offer this correction. If you read Rick's work and you think this is what Buddhist philosophy is, it's not correct. And the Zen traditions, and that's where Rick trained when he was practicing in, uh, practicing Buddhist philosophy in his life, some version of, of Americanized Zen is the tradition he turned to, but the Zen tradition makes this abundantly clear that white light unitive mysticism is rejected very explicitly in the Zen tradition. Buddhist philosophy is a relational philosophy. In that sense, it's actually much more resonant with the Jewish mystic Martin Buber's philosophy than it is with vague notions of a unitive mysticism. Well, of course, Rick has objections to many Jewish mystical traditions just on the basis of a conservative view of the Jewish tradition. But the basic point here holds, enlightenment in Buddhist philosophy is a profound and inconceivable relational experience. And it isn't a white light unitary experience. It isn't some experience of everything being nothing or nothingness. It's not emptiness as as a reified thing. It's alive. And in spite of these corrections that we have to make, there's something to be said for Rick's experience, both of studying and practicing Buddhist philosophy in the U.S. as a lay practitioner, and also his particular experience in Zen. Because in general, it seems Buddhist philosophy in the U.S. gets stripped of anything people in the dominant culture might consider supernatural or bothersome in a variety of ways. Now, we've already addressed some of the problems with this framing. In another contemplation, we talked about how if nature herself is already super, then the concept of the supernatural falls apart. Nature is super, and we don't understand nature well enough to write off possibilities on the basis of metaphysical speculation. So ironically, it's unscientific, even though scientists love to engage in this metaphysical speculation, and it lacks intellectual conscience. Buddhist philosophy, as it appears in the U.S., often comes far more domesticated than maybe what we need. Part of rewilding is not just letting the bison and the horses and the wolves come back and dominate the Great Plains again and and let beaver come back and so on and so on. Part of rewilding is letting our philosophies get undomesticated again. That doesn't make them crass or uh, uncivil or sloppy or chaotic. In fact, it raises the bar on our practice. And that also relates to the fact that Buddhist philosophy then comes kind of watered down in a variety of ways. We, of course, open with some stories from the Buddhist tradition. And they are a little bit stranger than we might have heard <laughs> if we're when we're sitting around the campfire saying have you ever heard tale of this buddhism that those stories are not necessarily the ones that come to mind we think of the white light 
unitive mystical experience, and that's not correct. Now, Buddha taught for over four decades, for over four decades of teaching. He gave a wide variety of teachings for a wide variety of people. If we were to gather together every teaching attributed to, to Buddha, we would have thousands of pages, literally thousands, thousands, many times longer than the Bible. And the Bible, the entirety of the Old and New Testament is not exclusively Jesus talking. And here we would be talking about thousands of many, many Bibles worth of just Buddha teaching to different people, different experiences, different occasions, events. I myself haven't read all of this. And I often think of it as either a synchronicity or a sheer coincidence that I have read any given teaching. If there's any particular teaching I talk about from the Buddhist tradition, I often think, yeah, I have no idea how I was able to read this because I bet lots of people haven't. And unfortunately, maybe more people should, though. You know, with the things that I read, I always find him to be so incredible, so insightful. When we expand Buddhist philosophy to include other teachers revered as sages, people who were just absolutely revered as brilliant, high-level geniuses, very advanced spiritual beings, if we were to include their teachings... So add, keep adding to the pile now. So we have this thousands of pages of just Buddha teaching and now expand it to teachers who were considered really the rare greats. We would have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of pages. So this is an incredible tradition. It's really a set of traditions. It's not monolithic. It's not one thing. Just like there's not a Christianity. There's a whole set of traditions there. And the same thing, even ancient Greek philosophy, Right. A whole range of people doing a whole range of things. So I don't expect someone like Rick to have read all of this stuff. No. In a Buddhist culture, people might start to learn and even memorize huge amounts of this literature from a very young age. The the Dalai Lama, alive with us today, started training at about five years old, which is really incredible. And we're talking about a spiritual prodigy. It's like taking someone at five years old and beginning their musical training, and then they stay with it. And then imagine what they're like at the age of 25, 35, as a composer. And so with the Dalai Lama, we would expect this guy to have the knowledge level of multiple professors with PhDs in Buddhist philosophy. That's really what we're talking about. And so that differs significantly from ordinary folk like us. We just don't have that level of training. And so I, I have a PhD in philosophy, and part of what I do through this format, this medium, is to try to help spread philosophy, to expose more people to really good teachings from any tradition, and to reflect as a philosopher, to, to rehabilitate this activity, to rewild it in America, here on Turtle Island. And so it's just all part of, uh, we're all trying to do our best. That's it. We have to just do our best and try to take care of wisdom wherever we find it. Try to take care of love, compassion, beauty, and grace, and sacredness wherever we find it. But it's vast, so we all have to work together because maybe you've read things that I haven't read. Good teachings, not just you know your average book, but just think of how many good things there are out there. Even the Zen tradition in which Rick studied has a vast literature, vast. Not every U.S. student of Zen has read very fully or very deeply into that literature 
And in the Zen tradition, it's it's a, just a strange quirk. It's one of the most literary philosophical traditions on the planet, and yet it derides words. So this is part. This feeds into people thinking they don't have to read, because Zen says no. We're before all the words and letters, beyond all the words and letters. And nevertheless, these people were all very literate. Now I say all of this to. Uh, in part, preface another story that that came to mind as I was thinking about these reflections. In this story, a highly respected fellow named Anuruddha goes up to a perhaps even more respected fellow named Shariputra. Anuruddha was Siddhartha's cousin, and he became one of the ten principal disciples of the Buddha, the philosopher Buddha. And Anuruddha had mastered some powerful psychic states, but he hadn't become enlightened. He was kind of like chief of the psychic students of Buddha. And Shariputra was kind of Siddhartha's right-hand person. Technically, he was one of two men and two women who functioned as Buddha's right and left hands, you could say. But Shariputra maintained a higher profile historically, and he's kind of well-known. And in any case, he was a, a, a big figure even back then, and his advice carried a lot of weight. So Anuruddha approached Shariputra, and he said, Well, friend, with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, I survey a thousandfold world system. Energy is aroused in me without slackening. My mindfulness is established without confusion. My body is tranquil without disturbance. My mind is concentrated and one-pointed. And yet my mind is still not fully liberated. So that's what he says to his kind of elder brother in the practice. But still, Anuruddha is a big figure too. He's one of the top, you know, ten or so disciples. So this is something like an apostle, a saint, telling us that he has perfect mindfulness, perfect energy and engagement, perfect peace and tranquility, perfect concentration, and that he sees with a divine eye that surpasses the human eye, he can see a thousandfold world system. So, wow. And this guy received direct instruction from Buddha himself. And he had nothing to do all day long other than practice, practice, practice. So we can imagine that he could have gotten pretty darn skilled. He could have become a much more skilled and profound meditator than most of us, at least many of us. Now here's what Shariputra said in reply. He said, friend, when you think with the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human, I survey a thousandfold world systems. Well, that's just your conceit talking. And when you think energy is aroused in me without slackening, my mindfulness is established without confusion, my body is tranquil without disturbance, my mind is concentrated and one-pointed, well, all of that is just your restlessness. And when you think, yet my mind is still not liberated, well, that's your remorse. I'll tell you what you should do. It'd be really good if you would abandon these qualities and stop attending to them. Instead, direct your mind to the deathless. So he basically tells the guy, you're full of yourself. 
This is all spiritual materialism. Let it all go and get back to the real practice. The Zen tradition, almost in particular, took this very seriously. And basically, any time a modern student of Zen has some kind of psychic experience, the Zen teacher will say, forget all of that, forget it, forget it, return to the deathless. Now, that doesn't mean that the Zen traditions themselves have no recognition of experiences that seem psychic or even psychedelic. Moreover, it says nothing about whether the Zen traditions can help us prepare for, work with, and understand and integrate such experiences. Just because a tradition doesn't focus on traveling to other dimensions of reality, talking to celestial beings, foreseeing the future, and so on, that doesn't mean that the tradition lacks the tools for doing such things in highly effective ways. The Chinese invented gunpowder, but they used it mainly for fireworks. But that doesn't mean we we are able to say they lacked the means to make artillery and explosives. Now, of course, in point of fact, the Hebrew Bible doesn't exactly focus on these kinds of experiences either. They're common, of course. They're throughout the Bible. There are interactions with divine beings. But in one sense, maybe they're no more common than in the Buddhist tradition. Now, either way, again, I don't blame Rick for not knowing about all these teachings and all these aspects of Buddhist philosophy. We aren't talking about marginal things. See, that it's not just, oh, the, there's all this weird stuff at the margin that you know he would have to be a scholar to know about or something. No, it's that the tradition is just very diverse. And the kinds of things we're talking about have a, a, a major presence. And in any case, the tools that we're talking about are central. The tools that we would use from Buddhist philosophy that could help us work with psychedelic medicines or medicines of any kind, those tools are central. And so we could always have at least a conversation about how Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist psychology could better orient us to work with whatever arises in experience, including working with medicine and what that might do, whatever medicine it is, but certainly psychedelic medicines. And so for both those reasons, that, there, that the tradition is vast and, and a whole big bunch of it, a huge, there's, a, there's an ocean of material here, and massive rivers of it include elements that fit right in with DMT and other psychedelic experiences. So first and foremost, that Rick shouldn't have dismissed Buddhist philosophy without looking for those massive rivers, at least a little bit, I don't think. Again, he could have said, well, I'm not going to work with this tradition, but not it, the tradition doesn't function. And secondly, okay, what about the things that are central? The basic practices and teachings certainly help us work with our experience. That's why they have pervaded psychotherapy. That's why we have mindfulness-based everything and compassion-based everything. Buddhist philosophy and psychology have created a revolution in therapy and neuroscience even, and cognitive science. It's affected all of this in the dominant culture. And all the stories that we're talking about here, they've illustrated a direct contradiction then to Rick's claims that Buddhist philosophy doesn't have a place for things like interacting with non-human entities, entering different dimensions of reality, and in general, manifesting mind. That's the most important thing.
And this has nothing to do with picking on Rick Strassman. I, I like uh, Rick, or, or at least, I, I mean, I don't know him super well, but we, I enjoyed our dialogue together. I read his work. I still recommend it. I think it's good. And this just has to do with critical thinking, which isn't personal. It's not personal. This is not a personal attack in any way. And we're looking at a basic problem. How can we work with the medicines of our world, any of the medicines of our world, in the most skillful and beautiful ways so that we can bring greater wisdom, compassion, and healing to ourselves, to other beings, and to the world we share. Buddhist philosophies are not immune to the kinds of spiritual materialism we see at work, both in the major religious traditions of the dominant culture and also in the world of psychedelics. Many of us have heard some disturbing stories about things that have happened in the context of working with psychedelics. And this has nothing to do with psychedelics in particular. It has to do with the fundamental challenges of spiritual materialism, which exists no matter what medicine, religion, politics, or general philosophy we try to root ourselves in. And spiritual materialism means that absolutely anything can become co-opted into furthering our suffering, furthering our ignorance, furthering our oppression both the oppression others impose on us and the oppression we impose on ourselves and other beings, whether human or non-human. Buddhist philosophy has always been good about trying to put spiritual materialism front and center so we can deal with it. And most importantly, if Buddhist philosophies can help us work with the medicines of our world in powerful and empowering ways, we need to cut through any delusions we have about those philosophies and learn whatever might bring us that empowerment. It's interesting to think of medicine in particular in relation to any philosophy Buddha was specifically depicted as a physician of the soul. And Tibetan physicians are expected to be advanced spiritual practitioners. And they, of course, revere the sacred image of the medicine Buddha, that beautiful blue Buddha many of us might have seen. The same basic image of healing holds in ancient Greece, too. In that lineage, which is not just my lineage, but something that belongs to all of us in the dominant culture and everyone else in the world who feels drawn to it. In that Greek lineage of love wisdom philosophy, as with many other traditions, philosophy is therapy for the soul. And the philosopher makes use of a pharmacon of teachings and practices to help us heal ourselves and our world. But whatever criticisms that we've raised about Rick's work, maybe the best thing about his work is not only that he encourages us to find greater skill 
and grace with these medicines, but that he puts it into a religious context that reminds us that we can make this work a sacrament. That means we treat the medicine as sacred and allow it to help us see ourselves and our world as sacred. The way of knowing we most need right now could be called an epistemology of the sacred. That's a fancy term, epistemology. It means that the way we know what our theory of knowledge is. We need an epistemology of the sacred. Any of our venerable philosophical, religious, or spiritual traditions can help us arrive at that. And we've just explored how Buddhist philosophy can do so. Well, really, we just begin to explore. We need to do at least a little further, especially to get at the Buddha molecule, the deeper meaning of the title of our contemplation. We didn't get to that yet, but I think this is a good place to pause and breathe. So we'll bring this contemplation to a close. And in that pause, between this one and the next one on the same topic, we might try to keep alive the issue Buddha raised in the teaching encounters we considered He said that many people wouldn't think the practice of philosophy, the practice of love wisdom, could produce extraordinary experiences. And that they would imagine that it had to be attributed to an herb or, or an amulet or some other magical power outside of us. And maybe we should sit with whether or not we truly value our own mind and the world we share, do we have confidence, confidence and a sense of wonder about our own mind and our world? Do we trust the vast potentials and the magic of our own mind and world? For the religious among us, this includes asking if they really trust the divine. And for all of us, it means asking if we trust sacredness the sacredness of the cosmos and the sacredness of the great mystery to which we all belong. Now, I, we do, I think the, the little bit more that we need to talk about is important, so I will try to release the companion to this contemplation as soon as possible, hopefully maybe bef in advance of the weekly round. I'd like to occasionally release more than one contemplation a week and I'd like to make this one available as quickly as I can to you, but to take your time and breathe and enjoy. And however long a pause you take, feel free to get in touch with any questions, reflections, or stories of the power or danger of psychedelic medicines or any other medicine you work with. Just go to dangerouswisdom.org. Until next time... This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them. <laughs>